Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss scientific principles for optimising human performance. I am Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we are joined by CrossFit coach and head of DECA Comp, Michelle Letondre. On paper, CrossFit must be a difficult sport to program for. You've got such a wide variety of movements which range across the spectrum from maximal strength all the way into long distance endurance. And on top of that, you don't actually know what's coming up in competition. So this makes programming much more difficult, but allows a certain level of creativity with it. In this episode, Michelle and I discuss her CrossFit coaching company, Deca Comp, her programming ideas for CrossFit, and how she changes her coaching style based on the athlete that she's working with. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors, because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of The Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. 
If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of The Progress Theory or my personal Instagram account at DrPhilPrice or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow and subscribe to The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Michelle Letendre. Michelle, how are we? Um, we are well. We are well. A little bit tired, but well. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it being a very, very busy time for you at the moment. So thank you so much for coming on to the progress theory right now. Oh, I am tired for totally unrelated reasons. <laughs> I went to go see a show last night. Oh, okay. So all the coaching's going amazing. Yeah, the, the coaching is going great. Um, my athletes are remote right now. So both of the athletes that, no, sorry, three of the athletes that I'm training for the CrossFit Games are all in their respective cities. So as of right now, it's kind of more communication via messaging and calling and, and stuff like that. But um, trying to get as much of the other work done as possible so that I can free up time when I have uh, one of my athletes come into Montreal before the games and then the games happens and those are all like we always anticipate for this week you know and we we wait we wait Mm. we wait and then it happens and then all of a sudden it's gone you know (laughs) yeah yeah of course I'm, i'm guessing now that especially working with the top guys leading up to the crossfit games that remote coaching is such a big thing i know it increased especially in the general population over covid but Yes. Was it something that CrossFit was doing already? Because to get access to the best coaches, you're not automatically going to have them in the same city. So surely remote coaching is the way forward. Uh, I've always worked remote, both as an athlete and as a coach. I've always done the remote uh, relationship. I've always preferred that type of relationship, uh, both as an athlete and as a coach. But it has been a trend in the past years that athletes relocate towards their coaching location. I can't do that because I sold my gym. I don't have a gym anymore. Uh, When my athletes do come over, I have a network of friends here and we'll go to different gyms and train. And it'll be about like one week, two weeks, sometimes a little bit more, or I'll go over to them, which has happened a lot during the last couple of years. So I think it's an arrangement that works really well if you're someone that is very independent and isn't afraid to ask questions. But it doesn't work so well for people who really need a little bit more of a hands-on experience with their coaches. How come you sold the gym? Was that just to make you more accessible in a way? Because it sounds like a really good way of doing things, what you described, because you can find the best approach, whether the athlete comes to you or you go to them. You can find what works best based on gyms in the area. It has limitations. Like uh, there's always a sense of not of taking up space when you're at a gym. It's not your gym. There are classes going around. You don't want to step on anybody's toes. And games athletes, I mean, like they they don't take up a, a whole lot of space. But at this time of year, they do. So there are both situations. There are advantages and disadvantages. I sold the gym because during COVID with the closures and everything and the amount of time I was investing in that business that was just dangerously not doing well versus my online coaching business, DECA Competition, that was really doing well and that absolutely needed my full attention. It just, that that separation was going to happen eventually. I was going to end up having to take care of DECA Comp full-time 
and exclusively. It just happened a little bit earlier on than we anticipated. So lucky mm. for me, my partner at the gym, it's called Deca Gym. <laughs> and Deca Gyms, uh, my partner, she's just all about the gym and she's just the best person for the job. So it turned out to be a really good transaction. And now I have a second home where I can take my athletes and I know that they're always welcome. It, it is a little bit far, but I wouldn't say it's the best arrangement. Like I would say the best arrangement that I can think of is me renting a space in a gym when I need it. And then there's this contractual agreement that like, this is the space, this is the time I needed that. This is when my athletes are here. And so it's cut clear, but I think I have the next best thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What um, started Decacomp? Like, what was the, because you were a CrossFit athlete yourself, weren't you? And then you've gone into yes, coaching. Yes. So um, tell, me, tell me a little bit more about Decacomp and how it started and what your aims are. Yeah, so when so Decacomp really grew from me as an athlete. I competed at the CrossFit Games for six years. I had been exposed to some fabulous coaching and I had been exposed to some not so great coaching for different reasons. And I've always absolutely loved coaching. When I started CrossFit, excluding my competitive career, when I started CrossFit, very shortly after I started coaching at the gym that I was working at originally as a secretary, I found CrossFit because I applied to be a secretary at their gym. And so when I started working there as a secretary and I got into CrossFit as a sport, and then I found out that I can get certified to coach CrossFit, I just fell into that world 100%. And one of my favorite things to do coaching CrossFit was to coach technique. And this is where I felt like as an athlete, I had to I had to reach out to specialists at, in my career to be able to kind of be technically sound in my sport. So I had an Olympic weightlifting coach, I had a agility like plyometrics running coach, I sought out help for powerlifting um, and all of these other disciplines that my CrossFit coach couldn't provide. And I was so hungry to learn about these techniques. And that's one of the reasons why I just absolutely fell in love with CrossFit because, you know, I am not someone that can do one thing. I need to do many, many things. And I want to learn as much as I can in those many, many things. So when I got exposed to this specialty coaching, I realized that, you know, if I can become a coach in CrossFit that can provide that technical knowledge of all of the different disciplines that we do and provide it in a very practical way because I've gone through it. I know how it's used. I know the effects of how these different techniques um, affect one another and our specific sport. So I just like I just dove right in. And when I retired from CrossFit in 2016, I knew right away that I was going to start kind of developing and thinking about what I would be doing in my future. And coaching and programming for CrossFit competition was one of those things. To be honest, I had no idea what it was going to look like. And today it is my full-time job. I coach, you know, 50% of the year, I'm really all about coaching and the rest is all about developing DECA comp and what we provide. And we provide programming for individual athletes that are looking to compete at all stages of the CrossFit competition environment. But we also provide programming and class services for gyms um, out in the world that mm. don't want to program for themselves and they want to have a cycled programming 
along with coaching cues and coaching feedback for their uh, community and their coaches. So it's a big, it's, I mean, we're not the biggest, we're quite small, but it's, it's just everything I've ever hoped for, for a career um, in one job, right? I coach coaches, I provide programming for, for classes, and we go over techniques of how to, how to do things, how to coach things that are on a day-to-day basis. And then on the other side, I get to coach people like Patrick Vellner at the top level of our sport and learn from him and then provide that knowledge to all of our clients. That's such a wicked story. I really love hearing <laughs> how you, you, know, you sort out expertise in so many different areas, but I always think the best way of learning is to practice. So by, you know, you were doing it for as part of a competitive career, but I'm assuming that you learn all these skills from a very basic level all the way up to a very competitive level. And even if it's like the same movement, yeah. taking different things into those movements are going to be different based on the level that you're at and you've been through that level so you can just really see just how much knowledge you've acquired and obviously you're going to bring that into your everyday coaching and across a wide range of different athletes as well because if you're working with Velna but also providing services to coaches and, and to general public like that's a really broad spectrum so it's really 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 cool to see well thank you I mean I am very very fortunate to be able to do that. And one of the things that I loved about CrossFit when it started, and this is something that Greg Glassman wrote about, is that we program for the best and scale for the rest, meaning that our needs differ by degree and not kind. And and I'm not an adept of the old school CrossFit ways and by any means, because if you know a little bit about CrossFit, there's like this spectrum of CrossFit believers, you know? But I... Mm. I I took that to heart because I do agree with it, you know, and I'm a very athletic person. I love sport. I don't like going to the gym and work out. That's not what I love about CrossFit. I go to the gym and I practice, like you said. So when you, when you have the opportunity to practice all of these things, and I think that, I think that one of the most beautiful part of being a CrossFit games athlete is that you get to experience athletics in such a different way than any other sport. It's it's amazing the things that you can learn and put yourself through as a games athlete. And if you're a smart person, if you if you kind of take that experience, it just builds you up to be this kind of person that can apply skill in every circumstance, you know? So it really does build CrossFit games athletes can be built to really withstand any anything really. Has there been any lesson that you learned as an athlete and you thought, okay, I'm going to take that lesson into my coaching uh, and found that actually in this circumstance, it doesn't really apply? Uh, yeah. Um, being listened. Yeah. Being listened to. Like mm. when I said that um, I've, expo- I've been exposed to some really bad coaching and some really good coaching, I've learned a lot of lessons as, a, as like an athlete that I transfer into my coaching when it comes to programming, like movements, what I should include, what I shouldn't include and what to look out for when you're fatigued during the games and stuff like that. But the biggest key lesson is when I have felt disconnected from my coaches is when I felt like they weren't really listening to me and what I was saying. And when you're an athlete, like most of the time athletes are very young and they're not necessarily the best at expressing their emotions and their stresses and really truly how they feel because they probably don't even know what it means. But 
when these bad situations occurred, it just, I never felt understood. So my goal as a coach is to always make sure that I sit with my athletes and I try to read through the lines and ask them the right questions so that I understand where they're at mentally. Because anyone who's done any sport, we know that like our mental states can be so fragile and it can make or break our careers. So that's, I guess, the biggest key learning that I'm trying to hopefully with success apply as a coach. Because of that, do you find that your coaching approach really differs from anyone that's new getting into the sport but has a lot of potential versus, I guess, Velner's a veteran now, isn't he, in the sport? Do you find yes. your approaches really differ between these two types of athlete? Oh, yeah, 100%. I, can't, I cannot be the way I am with Freya, with Pat. Hmm. Pat's like a 31-year-old, seen it all, done it all kind of guy. And <laughs> he's very pragmatic, very, very, very to the point, methodical and completely clear-headed. So when Pat is frustrated or nervous, I can tell right away because his attitude changes. And the, what I've learned with Pat is that you just have to let him kind of blow off the steam and then he'll get right back to his normal, pragmatic, practical self and go at the competition and do exactly what he needs to do to get points. But then there are the newer athletes, they'll need a little bit more questions, they'll need a little bit more thought and they'll need a, a little bit uh, softness to their approach. And then I'm, but I'm still learning because everyone is different. The way I was with, I don't know, an athlete I had in the past with James Newbery. I've had, uh, I coached James Newbery a few years ago. The way I was with him was just completely different, you know? So yes, you, you have to be different with all of those athletes and there's no there's no role I take on specifically with a female athlete that's 20 or a male athlete that's 21. It really depends on their personalities. And so at first, that's why, you know, before the competitions, try to get to know them as best as I can by getting exposed to them. They come here, I go there and stuff like that. And then, but I really truly get to know them at the games and at high risk competitions. That's when I really get to know them. So then that's when I know, okay, well with her, I can warm up like this, but not like this. I can speak like this, but not like this. And with Pat, it's different. You just need to listen and to, and to watch. Um, I find that younger coaches, with reason, they'll have a way of doing things or an idea of the way they want to do things. And then, you know, I remember my first year as a coach, I was like, okay, well, I need to be directive. I need to be this and I need to be that. And then I really quickly found out that that's not how I need to be. And really, I'm a support position when it comes to competition my role becomes more of a support position than as than does as a guide um and then again it depends on the person so i think newer coaches need to get through it's kind of like an athlete you you get through that first experience and you you don't know what to expect and you don't know what to do and then you adapt as you go and then you start to kind of look back and say okay well i did this and that didn't work and i did that and it worked and as coaches we have to do the same things um, there's absolutely no difference as a coach on the floor than being an athlete on the floor, aside from the physical demand, which to be honest, being a coach is a little bit more physically demanding <laughs> than we think. No, I can imagine. <laughs> because of this, do you often sometimes program to generate an environment of stress to see how the athlete can react and then you can learn a bit more about the athlete? Just going back to your point regarding the time that you really learn about your athlete is the CrossFit Games, which I can imagine being an incredibly 
stressful environment. Do you often yeah. find that with programming, maybe uh, like a DECA comp training camp, you do something similar just to see how they react, how they uh, deal with the stress of that type of environment, even though you're not going to replicate it quite like the games, but you're going to become close to it yeah. to a certain extent. In an ideal world, I would do that. This year, I wasn't able to do a training camp because it just didn't line up with the athlete's schedule and, and their their time. You know, Pat has a kid, a job, a family, you know, and then Freya had some engagements with her family that kind of stopped her from coming here earlier. But um, in normal times uh, before the games, we do have training camps and we do have very intense bouts of training that I can see how they react emotionally to that kind of volume. It's just never the same. And I, I, and I know that because I've been there. Um, it, it, it does break you in a sense where you, when you do those bouts of training and you, you execute training and then you miss or you fail or you don't feel like you should, you know, you have this idea. Every single athlete has this idea of what it means to train for the games, right? This hyper-romanticized version of being games athlete. It's like a Rocky montage video. And all you see is really, you can push hard and you can do this well and you can execute perfectly and it's hard, but there's challenges, but you can get through it. And it's, it actually doesn't feel like that. It literally feels like you're being pounded to the ground every day <laughs> and you doubt yourself a whole lot. And so we can see as coaches when that happens, what type of person they are, like if they're slightly more on the victim mindset style, or if they're just a little bit more open and honest and they say, listen, man, like I'm tired. Like, is this normal kind of thing? And they'll talk about it, but it's not the same kind of personality exposure as comes with a games experience, a competition experience where really athletes feel like everything is on the line. Luckily in our sport though, we have some stages in competition that allow for me to to see how they react to competition throughout the year. And so there's the semifinal where I got to see that with Pat, it's a little bit less of a stressor because he's a little bit more confident in his ability to qualify for the CrossFit Games. But for example, with Freya, who is in her first ever bout of trials for the CrossFit Games at the semifinals, I got to really see how she reacts to competition and stressors when everything is really on the line. Like at the semifinal, Freya was like, well, I qualify or I don't. My season ends or it doesn't. And so I got to see how she reacted to that uh, emotionally and you know psychologically. Before that, we also have the online uh, competitions where we have the open and then we have the uh, quarterfinals. And so the quarterfinals, I was able to go there in, in person with them and go through that process with them. And it's not the same kind of stress as competition, but it is a one weekend competition. So we do see the accumulation of fatigue and the mistakes that come from that. So we have opportunities, uh, but training camps will never really expose that truly. They have the, the like recovery is just so much easier but it does, it does help. And I know that in the past, like I've done training weekends in the past where we try to replicate the games, other coaching companies do that. And it is a very effective tool to get the athletes understanding, practicing, training, slash competing, recovering, training, recovering, training, recovering versus other stages. But it's just not the same. It's just not the same. What does a typical training week look like for one of your athletes? And if Vellner's still working... How does he manage to fit yeah. 
which I assume a lot of training around, oh, assuming it's not nine to five, must have a bit of leeway with that. No. But uh, where, how, do, how does this training look like? Well, Pat's training will look different throughout the year, right? So when we're talking about games training, I think that Pat is an example to follow when it comes to being very regimented and efficient with your time. Training right this week is probably their biggest training week before we taper for the CrossFit Games. What it looks like essentially is that they'll be, it's very specific at this moment. So everything is, almost everything is at high intensity and the sessions will be either two long 90 minute sessions, uh, sometimes a little bit more. The first session can go up to two hours and a half, depending on what we're doing. And then he'll have a break and then do a second session which usually the second session will be slightly less technical, a little bit more effort-based, really something that'll be lower risk. And then there'll be days like, for example, yesterday, which was a triple session day where there's going to be a 45-minute you know, running session or tr- what, what I call a track session, which is basically not, it's not like full-on running, but they're doing field work. And then they'll have about a 90-minute session in midday and then like a 60 to 45 to 60 minute session in the evening. And these training days are very rare. I think there's like four or five in the whole games training like block. And then the days that they only train twice will be like a two and a half hour session and then a one hour session. And what that usually I'll try to balance training sessions where the certain days will be weightlifting dominated and other days will be gymnastics dominated to to kind of allow for some CNS recovery between days. And um, sprinkled in there is going to be lots of conditioning. So games training is what we think of what elite level CrossFit games athletes train like. They do lots of Metcons, they do a lot of heavy weights, and they do it in a fast way. There's not as much rest to work like in a traditional training session. But when they're not training for the games, and this is something I've been doing for the last couple of years. This is pretty new for me, but we program in a very in a polarizing way. So I'll do in the very beginning of their season, they'll do 80% of their training in a very low intensity, very high volume way, where those days are all about getting a lot of really low skill weakness reps in so that we can increase their work capacity and aerobic capacity. And then one or two days in their week will be high intensity. And that'll be one session. And that's where we lift really heavy weights. And that's where we focus on making sure that their CrossFit is still on. And then as we progress towards their competition, it slowly shifts to a 50-50. And then after that, it gets really specific where almost all of their training is at high intensity. So that's what really it looks like. It's you know, we can go into crazy detail, but generally speaking, I am a, of the mentality that they do CrossFit year round. They just do it in different intensity and volumes. No, that makes complete sense. If you are trained at that 50-50 split the whole year round, you can imagine it being really quite, or the accumulation of fatigue can really sort of build it's, up. Whereas, you we know, don't balancing think about how you it. did almost like a 80-20 makes much more sense yeah. to me so well i mean they learned from my mistakes <laughs> cuz when i was training for the games like it was a lot of high intensity a lot of the time and i must yeah. i was a smaller athlete back then so i happened to be a really good weightlifter so my percentages 
and my lifting was very heavy. I was a good squatter. I wasn't the best deadlifter, but I was very strong for my size. So when what I realized coming out of it and as a coach looking and reading about different training methodologies and ideas, I realized like, well, no wonder, like I was very lucky because I didn't have a huge injury, but I finished my career with a back problem, a knee problem, a fascia problem, serratus shoulder, like problems, like all of these little things that kind of added up that made training almost impossible because no matter how I deviated from my injury, something else always happened. So not to say that my athletes aren't injured, it's part of the sport. But um, when I looked at the way I was training and the way I was mentally kind of over CrossFit training so quickly, well, so quickly, six years, um, I realized very, I realized that like, if I had trained the way I'm providing training for my games athletes right now, I think I could have been able to sustain probably a couple of years more. Yeah, yeah. How much does tactical games or competitive work start to influence the programming? And the reason I wanted to ask that question has come from, I guess, when you watch some of the pros train on YouTube or on Instagram, a lot of the decision-making of the programming at that particular time when the, the cameras are there does seem to be about, you know, what they can achieve in a particular Metcon. So for example, I've noticed now in competitions, people seem to be very good. Now they could do 21 thrusters and then just go straight into a handstand walk. There's no, you know, okay, bar down, get my breath back, compose myself, and then go into my handstand walk. It's almost like essential that you go from one straight to the other. And that has very much a, I guess, a physiological component, but also has a very tactical component with it as well. Um, so I wondered like how much does those decision-making on the game's floor, how much does that then influence sort of programming? Well, so those kind of skills are trained, to me, they're, they're trained year-round, right? Like if we're talking, there are specific movement combinations that we find in competition that are very common and that will train in different ways, right? Like um, CrossFit loves programming overloading, right? So they'll do like presses into handstand walk. They do that so <laughs> often. Or they'll mm. do, back in when I was competing, they loved doing posterior chain work with dynamic plyometric work. So deadlift and box jumps was a combination we saw all the time. And then there's other combinations that are a little bit less obvious, but they do all the time, push-pull, thrusters and pull-ups. And most of the time, those combinations are really when you've never done them before, ask anyone who's never done a CrossFit workout with before. And that's what really, ex that's what gets people. It's like, holy crap, how do you expect me to do that? But when you train CrossFit on a regular basis, it just becomes second nature. If we're referring to that specific combination where you're doing overhead work with a barbell or dumbbells and you go into an handstand walk, as programmers, like I have a spreadsheet of all the CrossFit game workouts Shout out to my coach who did that, <laughs> Brendan. Hmm. But we have a spreadsheet of all those CrossFit Games workouts. And we just simply kind of understand what the patterns are that they like to do. And we do it as early on as early season in different ways, right? So we know that they love to program shoulders and handstand walking or any, like they like to do overhead in multiple different ways. So when, when for example, on my high volume day, I'll do it differently at the very beginning where I'll expose my athletes to pressing as a strength piece because it's like, well, we need to press, you know, but then in my 
uh, other pieces in the day's training all have some handstand walks. So it's exposed in the same day, they'll have some recovery time. And as the year progresses, that recovery time is shortened to having workouts that are just, just that. And the recovery time is minimal. And so you work your way around that. So those tactical decisions like those, and I guess you mean practice, you mean, like tact, I, I don't use that word very often tactical, but those, those decisions of making sure that athletes are ready for specific movement combinations are done as early on as, um, when they're starting to train for the season, they're, it's just done in a more uh, recovery base. So, so it could, it could be in the same day or it could be in two different days, but it is part of our decision-making, but it's not combined together until we get to a specific phase. And then, then we really push it to make sure that that athlete can recover quickly enough to do it. And there are different ways of doing it. Like one off the top of my head, one way of doing it is let's say we do 21 thrusters at competition weight, which varies, but, um, let's say it's 95 pounds for the women, 135 for the men. And then I'll have them rest 10 seconds, do another set of 21 at a very lighter load empty bar, for example, have them try and recover during that process and then go into a handstand walk. So there's, you know, there's so many different strategies. And that's, I guess, one of the beautiful thing about CrossFit is that really you can't go wrong, except if you overdo it. <laughs> the, the sport is so general. There are so many different skills and exposures that the athletes go through that even if something you consider to be a mistake in your training and you're like, ah, shit, I did that, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. That gives the athletes an experience that will transfer somehow because that's the nature of our sport. We're trying to make adaptable athletes that are really, really fit. So there's so when, once you get comfortable with that idea, there's, there's a whole lot of things that you can do that'll transfer. That's really, really cool to hear. I didn't realize how early those decisions are there, but sounds like that's just part of coaching within CrossFit rather than, like, oh, we need to yeah. bring into these tactical decisions, you know, eight weeks out from the games because you're weak when you combine these two exercises. So actually, really, we've been working on this for, for weeks because it's part of our general prep anyway. <laughs> I've never really thought of it that way, but yeah, that just yeah. makes complete sense and definitely something that I can start implementing into my own training. Because <laughs> if I ever combine thrusters with handstand press ups, uh, handstand push ups, sorry, then my my shoulders just go. That's like my arch nemesis when it comes to a combination. Was there ever a yeah. combination that you particularly struggle with? Oh, anything with deadlifts. I was a really bad deadlifter. I was a terrible <laughs> runner. And I was a terrible deadlifter. And now my two favorite things to do when I'm in the gym is deadlift. <laughs> and I love to run now. But um, it definitely, like, there, are, every athlete will have a combination of movements that go down to physiological, physical weakness and that they struggle with. Mm. And we work on those weaknesses as early as we can in different ways, in a, in a more classic way. But it's really important to understand if if you're going to coach athletes in a competitive way to take, this is another mistake that I see. Uh, I mean, everyone has their own vision and their own way of doing things. I consider it a mistake because I have my own way. But I, I've seen coaches separate the components of CrossFit and put them together. And we come up with an athlete that is incapable of recovering 
in a competition and incapable of doing CrossFit workouts really well. And what, what, what we've seen and what we, what CrossFit has shown us is that the athletes that do CrossFit are the ones that are the best at CrossFit. So if you think that you can work the components of what make CrossFit separate, uh, special in a separate way, and then put them together like a puzzle, I think you'll be disappointed with the results because that's in the general preparation. We have the opportunity to work CrossFit style, mixed modality at low intensity, which will provide exposure to that, to that formatting, but allow recovery at when you're doing it at a lower intensity. So that's where I think we think of aerobic capacity. We think of muscular endurance. We think of uh, strength. We think of power and we all work on these things, but we neglect CrossFit as a, a, a very important part of our sport. And it is GPP. And that's the, what separates CrossFit from other sports. Specificity in our sport comes in uh, comes into play as just making sure that you have you do you're exposed to intense and you look at movement combinations and you try to replicate those movement combinations of competition. But the GPP still lies in the fact that we we have to do CrossFit. It doesn't mean that we don't work on the other things. Like when I coach Patrick and Freya and all of my athletes, they still do power sessions. They do power conditioning. They work on their strength. They work on their stability. They work on their aerobic capacity, all separate, but they always have CrossFit in their training all year round. And it, it adds to the important element of making sure that we keep our athletes stimulated because they do CrossFit because CrossFit is fun. If we separate all of these things, we just, we treat an athlete like we take away the nature of why they got into the sport all year round. Like I can't, see, there are days where they won't do a Metcon, but early on in their training, they're always going to do Metcons. They're just not going to do Metcons at the intensity and the grade that they'll do right now. No, that's really, really cool to hear. Cause it does seem like when people want to try and bring science into CrossFit, they just go straight for the individual components, like you said, the aerobic capacity, and then they start measuring certain physiological qualities to get some kind of number to support that. But if you actually look at the research that have used CrossFit-style WODs or Metcons, they say that, okay, this person increased in VO2 max, for example, but they likely increased VO2 max, not because they were training to increase VO2 max. They got better at CrossFit, which inadvertently also increased their physiological profile. So focusing way too much on the sort of testing and monitoring, kind of like you described, may limit the development in CrossFit. Let's get better at CrossFit and in turn, their physiological profile will also improve. Mm -hmm. Like I've listened to your podcast and I find it fascinating. It's fascinating the science behind training and what is amazing to me. So personally, if you start plugging me with stuff, like it's all great, but I, I hated it. I've gotten my blood test done to see what I need to work on, on my nutrition. Um, I've never had a VO2 uh, max test, but those things really truly in intimidate me because I did it because I loved CrossFit. I love learning and I love this. And so when you start kind of like adding a little, a lot of gadgets. I find it very interesting now sitting here today, but it, as an athlete, I was like, man, like then I got obsessed with measuring measures and I got obsessed with trying to improve. And any athlete is obsessed with trying to improve. But then I got, 
I got like worried that, oh, well, what if this doesn't improve? But the beauty of our sport is that, well, if something doesn't improve, other things will. We Maybe we don't know it yet, right? Like I try to improve, I'll, I'll like, use my running as an example. I tried to improve my running and I ran a whole lot. I get to the games and there's not as much running as last year. This is what I mean by we need to have, we need to work as much as possible on making sure that our athletes are adaptable because in reality we, and I'm talking about a CrossFit Games athlete because that that test is so different from other competitions that we have in our sport. But like the CrossFit Games is always a play of catch-up. The Games test things and then they always expose us to something that we've never done before. And then all of the athletes next year become better at that. Hmm. And so the measures are great. Like all of the, all of the scientific approaches are great. It's super insightful. It's so interesting. It's so, it allows us to really understand what we're doing, but we're always going to play catch up to CrossFit because they always come up with these things that we have to adapt to on the fly that has nothing to do with our physical capacity. It has to do with our mental and psychological capacity to overcome the obstacles that are in front of us. And if you're lucky, then in your, you have like a background in obstacle racing and you're faced with an obstacle course, then good, great. Other athletes won't be so lucky. Right. And the, and the example is swimming in 2011, they exposed athletes to swimming for the first time. I was a water polo player and a swimmer. That was my background. Lucky for me, the one test that was like, well, now all the athletes are going to swim. I, I was able to go, like I swam. It was 200 meters. It was nothing. It was peanuts. But then all of the athletes after that, all of them now include swimming as part of their training. Another example is like one year I competed, we had this big, huge cylinder to push. It looked like you pushed it like a sled, but it didn't act like a sled because it was just this big round thing that we had to push. No way can we train for that, but those who are the most adaptable were able to get through it. And so those are really, really important components of being a games athlete that can't really be measured. Um, you can, you just have to practice and you just have to be as creative as you can in your programming so that athletes are constantly exposed to things. And I had a discussion with Patrick Vellner about this most recently and always asks me every year, like, I don't know what this movement is. Like, what is this? So I do my best to make sure that I get athletes doing movements they've never done before, even after, I mean, Pat's is going to seventh games. And so creativity is a huge component of, of our work. We just have to make sure that we stay on top of probable movement combination, probable events, or events that probably will never happen. But it's just a question of, hey, I'm going to get you exposed to this because you never know. Like two years ago, two or three years ago, I took my athletes that were in, uh, in a training camp in Montreal, and I took them down to the water and we went rowing. And they, no one had ever done that before. And they're probably not going to give that at the games because expense-wise, it's just probably not a thing. But we're in Madison, Wisconsin, and there's a huge rowing team there at the university. And knowing that if I hadn't exposed my athletes to that, and they would have been told, well, you guys are going to row across Lake Monona, I would have been like, well, that that's on me. I didn't expose them to that. And I could have. So those are key. If you're going to coach athletes at the games, exposing your athletes to different situations is probably one of the most important factor of having a successful games athlete. That's such an important message 
it really made me reflect on obviously as a scientist my interest is all trying to figure out how the human body works in these situations so certain tests provide information for that but you can imagine testing someone like pat velner you need to really weigh up like is it necessary a lot of these physiological tests for example will you know they're probably going to show that his scores are quite high but they're not necessarily going to mean he's going to do well it's like a having a high physiological profile will get you into oxford but it won't necessarily mean that you'll come away with like a first degree from oxford like there's so many Mm -hmm. other components which are not very easily measurable especially adaptability um, which obviously you're trying to include it with your with your coach like how do you really measure that you don't know so it has to be like a combination of like understanding uh, physiological testing or really the physiological tests we're interested just to see what kind of physiological components are necessarily to to be good with the with the sport but if you just focus on that you're missing so many more important elements of crossfit which you know with through your examples that you provide of what you really really focus on seem to be really really important for success in in crossfit i always liken it to so say if you're working with a cyclist it's a bit more easy to utilize those tests and predict performance in cycling because it's very like you're on your bike and you just you just run and the physical capacity of that athlete is probably going to determine how well they do but then when you move into like soccer crossfit where it's completely unpredictable you have to be adaptable those physiological tests then don't determine success in those sport as well like me yeah. working with Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo oh right, if I improve his strength is that going to make him a better footballer probably not because there's so many other things and to yeah. take consideration of and you've just demonstrated that with what you try to achieve with your coaching in CrossFit. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, at one point those, the dad, the physio- physiological data will be super important to allow your athletes to be the best possible versions of themselves, right? Like we don't want to have just an adaptable athlete. That adaptable athlete needs to be powerful, needs to be strong, needs to be endurance. So we need to understand where that athlete needs to bring their game up so they can if they have a high level of mm. adaptability and all of those other components come up with them, then he's unstoppable. I mean, like, look at Matt Fraser. I think that uh, the gaming, why Patrick is so successful is probably more likely to do with his capacity as a competitor than his, phys- his like his physical capacities. Patrick beats people at their strengths because he's just really good at understanding the competition floor. But to get there, you do need, like before the games, all of those components, those, those physiological tests that we'll do and those weakness uh, tests that we'll do and to make sure that the athlete is the best person, those are crucial in the step of an athlete, right? Like we're talking about top tier. Patrick's improvements are now at a point where they need to be so, so specific for him to be able to step on top of that podium. So the beauty about working with a newer athlete is that you have so much room to work with. You have so much to work with. Like, well, Freya, I mean, like she just needs to get exposed to competition and she'll get better. And she also just needs to get a little bit stronger. I think uh, her lower body just needs to be a little bit stronger in a, in a flexion, like a squat. Her squatting is not as good as it can be. So we're going to improve her squat. And then, then we'll focus on, you know, the finer details. So all of those elements, they all add to each other. But where Pat is right now, we're talking about really like 1% increases. And that means that we should probably 
do all, all of those things and measure all of those things. With newer athletes, we have a little bit more leeway. We can be a little bit more artistic and, and stuff like that. But hmm. recently dove into the world of endurance sport. Like I'm doing triathlon now and I started cycling and I wouldn't call myself an avid cycler, but all of those those athletes to me are just like, it's just so amazing how if I look, if we take cycling, for example, there is so much science behind their training. And it just amazes me because it's like when you're an athlete there, there's so much data that you need to play with and need to understand. Like uh, triathlon is another example where they're looking at their wattages and they're calculating their nutrition. And there are so many components outside of their just pure physical capacity that need, they need to be aware of that to me is just, it's, I, I find that overwhelming. And in CrossFit, we're in a stage in our sport where we're not there yet. You know, people like they have their whoop data, but we still have a lot of athletes that don't wear them. And we still have a lot of athletes that don't wear a heart rate monitor. We still have a lot of athletes that don't have all of that data while they're performing. So I can see the sport in the future going in that direction because really all of the sport are like that. It's not so much a game sport where you're playing soccer and the game takes a bigger toll on the impact of the, the results. But I can see CrossFit going in that direction. We're just, we're in the infancy of our sport. You know, it's very reliant on your capacity. And so eventually people will need to understand where their heart rate at. Like, I don't know what other measures can come, come forward with that, but um, to, it's just, it's just a fascinating, CrossFit must be so fascinating for scientists. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking about this before the, the podcast, weren't we? Just how... I certainly feel the science is behind CrossFit. You're seeing all these amazing things happening in CrossFit and the, the research literature can't necessarily support it at the moment. So it, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. We're going to see some changes where, you know, we're going to have all of this heart rate data. We might have data around muscle oxygenation of the key movers in certain things. Uh, I think all this is going to really help certain decision-making, but we're certainly not there yet, but there's a lot of room for that's what makes it so exciting because we yeah, don't really know yeah. which way it could go and that's a it's a yeah it's always good to be involved with a sport that's technically in its infancy um it's hard to see mm -hmm. crossfit in its infancy because it's just been such a global superpower in terms of growth when when was the first crossfit games 2007 ah uh, yeah and technically it's a really young sport yeah yeah it is a very it's it it is it has grown a lot it's had it's up and down like it's going through some growing pains. You know, there are a lot of things around the sport of CrossFit that need to change, like regulations, you know, consistencies that we're going through. And we see other sports being so regulated and so regimented and so consistent in its output and what they provide to the athletes. And we're still kind of going through some problems with that. If CrossFit Games ends up ironing out those those kinks and everything and just kind of getting through these slightly difficult times of constant change, then I think we're going to see a sport where eventually the athletes will have no choice, but to rely on certain data when they compete and stuff like that. Personally, I'm happy. I was in the beginning, like there's something so beautiful about being a professional athlete without worrying about all that exter external information. But it, it's, there are things that I really take for granted with CrossFit Games athletes can do because having been one, when people look at the CrossFit Games athlete and they're like, well, how do they do that? And I'm just like, well, 
they get exposed to it and they just do it. Like they Mm -hmm. just do it. There's, you just do it. You know, you might not do it super well, but you just do it. And because you just do it because you're being told that's what you got to do. And so you have adapt to it. Then it just becomes second nature, like doing thrusters straight into a handstand walk. You just do it. And then you realize that once you become better at handstand walking, recover, like handstand walking, isn't that demanding you know, really what you got to do is just become efficient in the movement and learn to breathe. So after your thrusters, when you're out of breath, you just kick up onto a handstand and you just, you know, catch your breath on the handstand walk. Just a walk. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is just a walk. And then we have movements that look really intimidating, but once you get the mobility right and you get exposed to it, it's just not that intimidating. Handstand walk being one of them. Like doing friend under two minutes is not that big a deal. Like for games athletes, it's just not that big a deal for most population. It will never get there. And then, you know, it's funny because I had this conversation with my business partner and he's like, I think this person can make the games. And I'm like, no chance. And he, he's like, why not? And I'm like, there's just something missing. I equate it to risk at CrossFit games. Athletes will take risks and they are literally not afraid of hitting a wall, like doing a workout in a class. Like when an athlete comes to the gym and they look very athletic and you're like, well, this person potentially has uh, a chance to do well in this sport. And they do this, the, the workout and you can tell them shying away from the pain or the, the workout because it hurts or whatever that right away is like a tell, like, well, like, I don't know, but then you'll have people that are be, that'll be really reckless and, and you see them just kind of like biting into this intensity piece. And then you're, and if that person represents physically someone that has the potential to be a CrossFit Games athlete, because they have like physical capacities that are just, you know, above the norm and they have that kind of attitude, it's like, well, you know what, that person potentially has what it takes to kind of get into that journey of being cross games athlete. There's something about the grittiness of an athlete that says a lot more about their potential than their physical capacity. It's all about, I've always said the cross games are risk takers and they're adaptable and they're, they're just unafraid, you know, and to certain degrees, because I mean, I was a cross games athlete and I was super scared of certain things. Like one of the most scary events that I've ever been exposed to two events. One of them was an empty sled push. It was a full on empty sled push out. We rested for whatever time. And then we pushed the empty sled back. It was the scariest event that I've ever done. And then the second one was a half marathon row. And I remember sitting on my seat when they told us we were going to do a half marathon row back in 2013. I was like, well, I didn't sign up for this. Okay. Bye. Like I'm not (laughs) doing this legit in my head. I'm like, they can't make me do this, but I did it. And then, and then you just, you're like, well, a half marathon row. Okay. I've done it. <laughs> you know? So it's just yeah. that yeah, they definitely. have CrossFit games athlete have one hell of an opportunity because you get thrown into things that you just never thought possible. I like how you just brought it back to its bare bones like you could think about yeah. the science all you want, but as the ones that are going to do well are the ones that are going to go in head first and uh, survive. They adapt and survive. Uh, yeah. I, I agree with you 100%. You can just tell with that frame of mind that they will, you tell them to do something and they will just go 100% at it. 
they're almost the favorite my favorite athletes to work with because i'd rather tell an athlete to calm down at certain points rather than have an athlete that might think too much and never really push themselves into that red line when they need to and not to say that they have to do that all the time but they have to be able to get in that zone at some point Um, 100 you just nailed it on the head like holding an athlete back is probably the most important factor as a coach that you can tell if someone is okay, I can work with this person. And it's not to say that they won't eventually kind of hesitate and, and pull back a little bit. But if you're hold, like, I remember when I started CrossFit, I was in the gym all day, all the time. (laughs) And I just wanted to do everything right away to the point where my biggest lesson learned in that process was I got a tendonitis in my Achilles tendon and my elbow and my this and my that. And then I was like, okay, I need to pull back. And then you start to dose your effort with your smarts, right? Like you have to do this intelligently if you want to go forward. And this is all a learning process that athletes need to go through. Obviously you don't want your athletes to freaking injure themselves, but at one point they will, and that will be a learning curve for them to understand, okay, well, this is, if I want to do this long-term, I need to manage, you know, all of these things. I need to seek out help. I need to get I need to understand what I'm doing, blah, 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 blah. But you, you feel you nailed it on the head. I would rather work with someone that I have to tell them to take rest days and relax than to say like, I had an athlete once that I realized they were doing it for all the wrong reasons. And I realized then and then like, this person is not going to go anywhere. They're doing it for the wrong reasons right? Like doing it for stature and money and winning. You have to love CrossFit and efforts. You have to love what you're doing because CrossFit games are exposed. They're training so much. CrossFit games athletes at this point in time right now, they're probably all wondering, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. But if you love what you do, that's what gives you the discipline to just make sure that you stay on track and you're you know, like people talk about sacrifices. It's not sacrifice. It is full on love for what you're doing. It only becomes sacrifice when at one point you're like, well, this is my career now. And as much as I would like to, you know, stop, I, I can make really good money from doing this. I still love it, but it's, it's more of a job now than anything. And then people will get there and they will stay there and that's totally fine. But before you get, you get the opportunity to, to kind of make those decisions, nothing is a sacrifice. Everything is a necessity. Michelle, that was absolutely amazing. <laughs> and I really loved your approach to coaching, but also your approach to programming. Everything is very logical and well thought out uh, and it's definitely going to make, make me reflect on certain programming decisions that I think I will be doing in the future. Um, for Decacom, where can people find more about it? Yeah, we have a website, www.decacomp.com. Um, on Instagram, it's just at Decacomp, D-E-K-A-C-O-M-P. And um, all the information is there. We're we're very active on social. Um, I love answering questions. If people have a, have a question, I think my, web, my email is on my website. If not, then they can get to my social network uh, at Mich, M-I-C-H underscore Letendre. L E T E N D R E. That's my Instagram uh, Instagram account, and people can sh- shoot questions there. I love answering 
that's that's amazing and i definitely recommend anyone that has any questions after this podcast to uh send them your way hopefully you won't get inundated with too many that it becomes <laughs> too much to handle but uh, thank you for being so open for answering any questions michelle thank you so much it's been brilliant well thank you for having me phil i really enjoyed our conversation Thank you.